So today we are continuing the sermon series that we started last week that we're going to do through all of 2021, creatively titled The Gospel of Mark. And we're working through the whole thing. And if you want to know why we're doing that, go back and listen to the first 10 minutes of my sermon last week. I laid out five reasons why we're doing this. I think they're really important for you to know as we go through this year. So the first thing I want you to do is have your notes out. If you don't have your notes out, the notes are available in an email that was sent to any member of Cross of Life. They are also in the description of the YouTube video if you're watching on YouTube. They're in the notes section if you're watching on our online portal or if you're listening later on a podcast, it's also in the description of the podcast. I encourage you to have those notes out because it's scientifically proven that taking good notes helps you remember more things. And since we're hearing God's word today and Christians want to remember more of God's words, you should take notes. And I realize some of you think you're too cool to take notes and you're wrong. That's what Christians do. They care about what God has to say. And so I encourage you to have your notes out, whether you printed them or you have them virtually on a laptop next to you so that you can hear what God has to say and write it down. So you're teaching yourself these valuable truths. Then on the back side of that sheet, we have our life group discussion questions. Our life groups are where we gather together as Christians outside of worship to encourage each other, pray for each other, support each other, tell the truth about ourselves and be forgiven, and also just continue to study God's word. And that's what we do with those life group discussion questions. Those are questions that actually take on parts of the text that we're not going to study today because there's just too much. And when I study these texts, I usually get about six, seven, eight different points that I could talk about, um, but you don't let me preach for an hour. So I have to pare it down. And so I put the rest of those things that I don't talk about in the sermon in those life group discussion questions. So you can obviously take those life group discussion questions and work through them with your family or with a trusted friend during the week. That's what my family did this last week. We just went through one question every night at dinner. But here's my encouragement to you, get in a life group. And my incentive for you is that if you do, and your life group chooses to study the discussion questions from the sermon, you get my answers to all these questions. Um, If you start a life group and you want to go through these questions, I will make sure that I give you very thorough explanatory answers to all these questions so that you can learn more about these texts and get deeper into God's word. If you want to start a life group, anyone can start a life group. Uh, You just have to talk to us, contact us, we'll set you up. We can set you up with the electronic needs as well to do it virtually. So with all of that said, let's dive into the teaching for today. Uh, The first thing that we do every week is we put some flesh on Mark. Uh, The idea here is that we want to get some of the context of the book of Mark so that we can understand the content a little bit more vividly. And the question that I want to take on today as we put some flesh on Mark is who wrote the gospel according to Mark? And you might be thinking to yourself, well, it says Mark at the top. So Mark? And the answer is yes, sort of. If you were to look up popular, I'll put it in air quotes, scholarship on the Bible and particularly on the gospels, you would find that some may be popularized by a guy like Bart Ehrman, you maybe have heard that name before, would say that the gospels are anonymous works that were put together hundreds of years after Jesus was actually alive on earth. And because they are anonymous, we don't know who wrote them. We don't know if they actually used eyewitness testimony. And they were just later attributed to famous disciples so that people would believe that they were God's word, but we can't actually trust them to be God's word. So what are we going to say to that? Who actually wrote the gospel according to Mark? Well, we got a couple layers there, so let's pull them apart. Uh, The first of those is that the claim that the document called the gospel according to Mark is anonymous actually has a little bit of merit. 
Uh, when you would look at the ancient copies of the Gospel of Mark, which we actually have one from the first century, uh, sorry, excuse me, the second century, that um, the 100s AD, which would also tell you that it wasn't written a couple hundred years later, uh, there is actually no name on the document. It doesn't say Mark at the top or anything like that. But that would have been extremely normal in that culture. See, if you were to put a name on the top of a literary work, essentially what you were saying is this is a product of my mind. So if you're writing fiction or you're writing philosophy, you'd say, this is my idea, right? Or this is my production. So you get things like Plato's Republic or Aristotle's Poetics, the examples of this. You put the name on that. Um, If you didn't put your name on a document, what you were claiming is that it was history that should just be believed because it's just facts. And that's exactly what Mark does. Uh, This document has no name on it because it's supposed to be understood as just facts. Um, I realize this will go over a couple of your heads if you're a little bit too young, but before we had a thing called Wikipedia, we had these things called encyclopedias, and they were huge volumes of books that would tell you stuff about stuff. And you know what those encyclopedias never had? Authors, right? You never opened the encyclopedia from like G to F and said the author of the encyclopedia from G to F is so-and-so. It doesn't work that way because encyclopedias just expect you to believe that these are the facts. The same thing is true with this document, according to Mark. But the cool thing is that a couple hundred years later, when we start to see Mark's name put at the top of the document, is we get it put in a specific way. And that's exactly how I worded it here on the screen for you. The gospel according to Mark. Not Mark's gospel, the gospel according to Mark. That would have been abnormal. Remember, Aristotle's poetics and Plato's Republic. Why is it that way? Well, as a Christian, you know the answer. This is not about Mark. This is about the gospel. The focus is on the gospel. And yes, Mark wrote it, but, but it's about the gospel. But that still doesn't answer the question of whether Mark wrote it or not. Because a couple hundred years later, we see Mark's name showing up. Well, how do we know somebody didn't just attribute it to him? For the answer to that, we have to go back to church history. And I don't have time to go through all the different quotes, but if you want to, you can look up these guys on your own time. Guys like Augustine, Irenaeus, Origen, Papias, all first, second, third, fourth century theologians and church fathers who all claim that Mark wrote Mark's gospel. In fact, Papias uh, is one guy who lived right at the turn of the first century to the second century. So the late like 90s into the 100s AD, he actually personally knew the apostle John. It's pretty good testimony when he says that Mark wrote the gospel of Mark. But there's still another problem. And that is that the Christian church does not recognize a scripture as actually God's word, unless it's connected to an apostle or a prophet. And here's the problem. Mark is not an apostle. Mark was a traveling companion of some of the missionaries in the first century early Christian church, but he himself was not an apostle. So what do we do about that? Sure, we can maybe prove that Mark wrote it, but how do we even know it's God's word? And the answer is Peter. All those church fathers that I list all say that Mark wrote as he was guided by Peter. Now, just think about this for a second. When you open the gospel according to Mark, you might think, who is Mark anyways? And don't worry, there is a Putting Flesh on Mark episode coming to you soon that will answer that question. But imagine if you would open your gospel and you would see the gospel according to Peter. Well, if you've read the Bible at any length, you know who Peter is. You know some of the things he said, some of the things he did. You may know kind of characteristics of his personality. It almost brings that whole story to life, right? So as you think about this, think of it from Peter's perspective. You might ask yourself, okay, well, then why didn't Peter just write it himself? 
And the answer that the church fathers give us is that uh, Peter used Mark in order to make sure his Greek was really good. So Peter is a Jew, his first language is not Greek. And even though he would have spoken Greek, he wanted to use Mark who was better at writing Greek in order to make sure his Greek was very accurate. And so here's the question that comes at the end of this, why does any of this matter? And here's the reason. If you're going to have a conversation with somebody who does not believe that the Bible is God's word, it is not enough to just believe that it's God's word. That's enough for your own personal faith to believe that it's God's word. But if you're going to actually have a conversation about the validity of the scriptures, you need to know some history about them. And since what's swirling out there is that they weren't written by Mark, they were anonymous, they weren't written until a couple hundred years later. Since that's the scholarship out there, that's what the average person is hearing. You need to know the truth. And so I hope this helps you put a little bit more context into Mark, but also helps you understand it's definitely God's word. So with that said, let's dive into the text for today. We're going to read chapter one, verse 14 to 20. Again, you have your notes and your Bibles out so we can get moving on this. The text says, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. This is the gospel of the Lord. So remember, a number of things are covered in the life group questions, but the three questions that I want to take on today, my three points, if you will, are who did Jesus call, how did Jesus call, and why did Jesus call? So we're going to talk a lot about the calling, obviously, of the disciples here. And the first of those points is who did Jesus call? So if you want to look at the text with me, we're going to focus in on verses 16 and then 19 and 20. Um, The text says, as Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. When he had gone a little bit farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. And without delay, he called them. So who did Jesus call? Uh, The answer is pretty simple. Peter, who was called Simon, but his name was later changed to Peter. His brother, Andrew, James, and John. And in there, you have Jesus' inner circle of disciples, right? Who see some extra special things from Jesus' ministry, Peter, James, and John. Um, But there are some characteristics of these guys that I really want to focus in on for us today. Um, The first of those characteristics is that they were busy fishermen. You can hear it right in the text. As Jesus comes to Simon and Andrew, they are casting their nets. And when he comes to James and John, they are in a boat preparing their nets. Like they are mid-work day. Uh, Fishing was a hard job. It was a hustling job, right? You only made as much money as you produced fish. And the only way you get fish is you go out and fish. In fact, later in the gospels, we find that the fishermen are actually fishing through the middle of the night in order to catch fish. This is a job that was full of long hours and hard labor. Whether it was pulling nets out that were full of fish or mending nets, um, it was a tough job and they were busy at it. The second thing we find out about them is that they were rough dudes. Um, I think this is somewhat intuitive. If you know somebody who works with their hands generally, they're a little bit rough around the edges. But we even find this in the text of the scripture when we find out later that these guys are some of the guys who say some pretty brash things without thinking or do some pretty unwise things without thinking. Uh, they're the kind of people who see a nail and want to smack it with a hammer instead of thinking out, thinking out what might happen if they actually smack that nail with a hammer. 
The third thing we find out about them is they are not theologically educated. Um, they are good Jews, and from that, then we would have known they would have known the Old Testament. But this is a little bit of just intuition again, too. If they're working that many long hours as fishermen, they weren't spending all that much time studying scriptures. And again, from the scriptures, we find out that there were many places where these guys didn't understand what the Bible was teaching them. Jesus actually had to reteach it to them. And a fourth characteristic we find out of them is not in this text, but we know it from the rest of the Gospels, that these guys were prone to failure. Uh, Peter particularly puts his foot in his mouth and makes a whole bunch of mistakes throughout the Gospels. And in fact, continues to make mistakes even after Jesus has ascended into heaven. I was just listening to a sermon this morning uh, talking about how in Acts, Peter has still not figured out the distinction between Jews and Gentiles that God has erased because of the gospel. Um, so even after Jesus is gone, Peter is still working out some of his own failings. So why do we walk through all these things? Well, I think there are some temptations that can come on the average North American church-going Christian today that are parallel to these characteristics that we see in the fishermen. The first of those was we said they're, they're busy fishermen. And I don't think I'm speaking out of turn when I say that busyness is one of the most common characteristics of North Americans today. And it's not a good thing. I mean, think about this. Have you ever been in a conversation? You've asked somebody, how's it going? And they say, oh, so busy. Or maybe you've said the exact same thing, right? I'm very busy right now. And even though you say it with that kind of voice, that's like, I don't really like this. Deep down, you kind of like it. You're not trying to change it. You're not trying to get a different job or trying to move to a different city or, or trying to change things significantly about your life to make your life less busy. And if I may go as far to try to find a cause for that, I think it's because we're worshiping a whole bunch of false gods and trying to deceive ourselves into a good work of hard work, of good work ethic but instead ending up far too busy. Maybe it's uh, money that we actually worship. And busyness means we make more money, which means we can worship our God of money. Or maybe it's acknowledgement. Like we want to put in more hours so that we're more acknowledged by our coworkers or our boss, because that's our real God. Maybe it's significance. Maybe it's just internal. If I'm not working, I don't feel like I'm somebody or like I'm doing anything worthwhile. Maybe it's somebody else's expectations. Your parents expected you to be this way. Your friends or, or somebody else expects you to be this way and their approval is what you're actually worshiping. Or maybe it's just the fact that you don't want to change because it's too hard to change. And so you like to claim that you're busy, but well, it seems too hard to change. And what you really are worshiping is your comfort in this situation, even though you're uncomfortable, as weird as that sounds. North Americans are busy. Now understand, and I made this distinction already, hard work is not a bad thing. And even being busy is not a bad thing. But what the Bible calls us to is busyness in balance. Maybe one way I can illustrate this for you is the ordering of the Ten Commandments. God is particularly intentional with everything he does. And one of those things is the ordering of the Ten Commandments. And so think about this. The Seventh Commandment, which is our commandment about possessions, comes after the commandment about marriage and the commandment about our bodies, our health, the commandment about our families and the commandment about worship of God and rest. And isn't that the exact opposite of how we often look at life? Like I'll worry about my possessions or my work 
And then I'll worry about my family, my, my marriage after that. Then I'll worry about my health. Then I'll worry about my family. And then I'll worry about God. But it's the exact opposite. God says, worry about my things, my word and rest so that you can see me work for you. Now put it back on the disciples for a moment. They were busy. They were literally in the middle of their work day. And yet Jesus still called them. What does that teach us? Jesus calls you. And what you can't say at that point is it's someone else's job. You know, think about these disciples. The Bible at least implies, I think actually kind of teaches, that those guys were at Jesus' baptism. But what did they do right after the baptism? They didn't go to Jesus and say, hey, where are you going? What are you going to do next? Can we come along? No, they went back to work because they were busy. And I wonder if that's sometimes what we do. Uh, We hear this gospel message. We hear how we're empowered by the Holy Spirit. And then we say, sounds good. I'm going to go back to doing what I'm doing. Jesus doesn't let us do that. He doesn't let us say that's the leadership team's job, or that's the pastor's job, or that's the church's job, or that's just somebody else's job. He says, I'm calling you and I know you're busy and I'm asking you to come with me. Now understand that doesn't mean to leave your work completely. In fact, we find out through the whole gospels, these guys were still fishing regularly, but what they understood is their priority was first Jesus and then everything else in their life. As you look at your schedule, is that how your schedule is is oriented? Like the non-negotiable thing, is it church? Is it Bible study? Is it life group? Is it family devotions? Or is the non-negotiable thing that everything else has to fit around work? Maybe that requires some repentance on your part. The second point is that they were rough dudes, right? We said they're kind of odd guys to pick if you're going to go out and preach this message of the gospel. You'd want guys who maybe a little bit more, I don't know, maybe verbally attractive, like they could speak better, or maybe they just didn't look like guys who were rough around the edges. I think that's a temptation for us as well. Well, we may not be work with our hands, rough around the edges types. We might just say, it's not for me. Like I know there are some people who are really into church things and that's great. That's awesome for them, but that's not me. I'm not one person. I'm not the type of person who's going to get involved with that kind of stuff or, or be able to put that much time into it. Jesus calls you. So you might not feel like it. You might feel that, you know, you don't have the personality. You don't have the gifts. You don't have the energy. You don't have the time. But, but Jesus said, don't worry. I'll figure out all those things for you. I'm just calling you to come along with me. Those guys were not finished products when Jesus called them. But through those three years and even after, they were made into those finished products of apostles. The third temptation uh, we said is that they were not theologically educated. That's also, I think, a temptation for some of us when we think about being called into the church's work. We might say, well, I don't know enough. I don't have all the answers. I can't uh, quote scripture and uh, uh, Bible verse and uh, text, excuse me. So then therefore, I'm not somebody who can really do the work of the church. Except that's exactly who those guys were. Jesus said, I don't need you to know all the answers. I'm the one who has all the answers. I just need you to bring people to me and I'll convince them by my power that I am who I say I am. And we also found out that they were prone to failure. And I think that's also a temptation for us. I'm too sinful. I make too many mistakes. I'm not a very good person. Or or maybe we think of like a specific event in our life that people know about. and, and, And if I was in a position where I was sharing the gospel, like people would bring that up and say, yeah, but you're the person who did this. So those disciples were. They were those who were prone to failure, even throughout their life after Jesus ascended into heaven. 
Your sinfulness is not going to disqualify you from being able to share the gospel powerfully. And so as you look at your list of excuses as to why you are not regularly in God's word, talking about God's word, letting it infiltrate the different parts of your life. Remember these guys, they were busy. They were rough around the edges. They weren't the type you would have picked. They weren't theologically educated and they fell into sin all the time. And yet Jesus still called them. Now there's one more temptation I want to give to you. And it's kind of like photo negative temptation. And that is that I am qualified. Some of us might fall into this temptation. We might look at that list and say, well, you know, I am about the church's business. I don't think it's somebody else's job. I take this on myself and, and I know I'm not theologically educated, but I'm still working at this. And I know I'm not really the type of person, but I'm, I'm giving my all. And we might start to think about ourselves like, yeah, I am kind of a good person because I'm about the church's business. I would say that that's my temptation. I mean, I've given my life to doing this ministry and it's pretty easy for me to think, yeah, God really values me. <laughs> The answer is he does not value me because I'm a pastor. He does not value me because I get up and talk about him every Sunday on a live stream. He values me because Jesus died for me. And if you're going to understand the rest of this text, you have to understand that point. To go back in the context to Jesus' baptism, where he gets into the water for you to repent for you so that all righteousness can be be fulfilled on your behalf. And then he goes out and faces temptation for you against Satan and never fails so that he can give you that righteousness so that no amount of work or lack of work would define your relationship with God. But that is the foundation you can say, okay, if it has nothing to do with who I am, what I'm capable of or what I've done in the past, then therefore I can do this. And I would encourage you to think about that as we go through the rest of the text. That's who Jesus called. He called them and he calls you. That's the first point. Second point is how did Jesus call? Well, the words are are very simple. He says, come follow me. (laughs) Uh, But what you see there is maybe not exactly what Jesus uh, communicated. I'm not saying the words are particularly different, but the emphasis of what he says is a little bit different. That word that is translated come is literally a verb form of the Greek word for here, here as an H-E-R-E. You can almost think about it as like the way that you talk to your dog when your dog is a little too far away and you want your dog to be next to you and you say, here boy, like that's what he's saying. He's saying here, here now, come now. Um, It's not like Jesus was like trying to put out his case for like, this is going to be super fun. Come on, guys. It's going to be great. You get to come with me on my ministry. No, he says, no, here, now, you, boy, here. That's pretty powerful. Uh, Jesus is not messing around with these guys when he makes that call. And so we want to pull out a couple things from this, how Jesus calls and what that means for us. First of all, it's his choice. In that culture, it would have been common for a young Jewish man to grow up and then choose a rabbi he wanted to follow. And so he'd pick the rabbi who he thought he was you know, most in line with or liked his teachings the most. And then that rabbi would have some sort of like test, um, whether it was a test of knowledge of the Torah or something else to become a, a student of this rabbi. But Jesus flips that narrative on its head and says, I don't care what you want. I'm choosing you. It's completely atypical. Rabbis did not choose their students. Students tried to choose their rabbis. But Jesus comes and says, you, here, now. What does that mean for us? It means that Jesus is very straightforward with us. Uh, Very easy for us, I think, in North America to come to church on Sunday, hear the words and say, that's interesting. Maybe I'll remember that. 
or that might have some application in my life. But we don't see it as a direct call on my soul to be in line with Jesus and to be with him. We ought to hear it that way. This is God's almighty word that he's speaking to us through the apostles, through our pastors. We ought to hear that call. I think of it like the way I talk to um, my daughter, Irene. Irene now is at the age, age where discipline is becoming part of something that we have to do regularly. And um, one of the things that I, I find myself doing more and more, and I don't like this about myself, um, but when I talk to her, I, I'll give her like a command and then I'll sort of ask for her opinion on it. You ever done this? Like you'd be like, time to go to bed. Okay. <laughs> you ever done that with your kids? I realize I could just be asking for uh, an understanding, but I, I can see it in my heart. I'm asking for her approval in a way. Like, I don't want you to be mad about this. I want you to be okay with the fact that I'm taking you to bed. But that is not the way the relationship works, right? I am the father. She is the child. She goes to bed because I say she goes to bed. And I'm trying to train myself to talk this way more. Time to go to bed. That's how Jesus talks to us. He doesn't present his case and say, what do you think about this, guys? He says, no, this is it. I choose you. And because of that, we can say there is no wiggle room with Jesus. You're either with him or you're not. Those disciples had the choice at that moment when Jesus called them. They could hear the call, listen and follow, or they could stay right where they were. But there was no option to just follow at a distance and pick and choose what Jesus said and to apply some certain things to their life. North Americans struggle with this, I think, more than most people, that we kind of just like a pick and choose Jesus or a Jesus at a distance. That's not how the Bible talks. That's not how Jesus talks. He says, you're either with me, you are following me, or you are far from me. Here now. You hear that call? It's for you. It's not just for them. Jesus says, come follow me to you as well. So that's how Jesus called. Finally, let's talk about why Jesus called. Uh, the last couple of verses of the text, Jesus says, come follow me and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his father, their brother, John, in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired man and followed him. Okay, so the last thing here, why does Jesus call them? And uh, the answer is to call them from something and toward something. This always happens when Jesus calls, when God calls in general. He always calls a person from something to something. So you can see this in Joshua, right? Joshua um, says, by God's inspiration, choose who you will follow today, whether the gods of the Amorites are from your, foreign, from your native lands or the God who has taken us to the promised land. And as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. In other words, he says, you have the choice. You can go back to what you had or you can follow with the God who has saved us. In other words, I'm calling you from that worship to this worship. See this in Abraham, right? When God calls Abraham, he says, Abraham, I need you to leave your town and your family and go to the place that I'm going to show you. He calls you from something to something. And the same thing is true here with the disciples. Jesus calls them from something and to something. So first, what does he call them from? Um, specifically in the text, we see obviously their fishing business, uh, but it was more than just their daily labor there. We can see in the text that it says that their father Zebedee had hired men along with his sons who were working. It was really a family business and it wasn't a small operation. There were employees at this thing. Um, it wasn't just their hobby that they would do on the weekends. This was their day in day out life. And it was big business for them. He said, leave that all behind. What could that look like for you? What is the thing that defines you that God is calling you to go away from? 
Maybe it's a, a relationship that you have that is not God-pleasing or the person that you're in that relationship with is not leading you to God. Maybe it's a way that you're living, a way that you spend your time that God's calling you away from. Maybe it's an addiction that he's calling you to fight against. Maybe it's a self-image that is calling you to leave and to see yourself the way he sees you in your baptism. There are all sorts of things in our life that we like to keep around, but they're things that God would not want us to keep. And so he calls us from those things. That's going to look different for every single person. But maybe an easy way for you to find out what that thing is, is to ask yourself this question. How would my life be functionally different if I was not a Christian? So start there. Look at your life and say, okay, if I was not a Christian, what functionally would be different? How would I be differently spending my money or differently spending my time? or differently living my life in my relationships, differently thinking about work, differently thinking about where I live or how I live. What would be different if I wasn't a Christian? And on the one hand, if you can't think of very many things, then maybe you can start to evaluate those different areas of your life and say, okay, what is God calling me away from? Is he calling me away from greed? Is he calling me away from selfishness? Is he calling me away from a way that I see my life going? And on the other hand, If you do say, okay, my life would be different, it's still a chance for you uh, as a Christian to look and say, okay, I've got some of these things worked out, but there are always more aspects of my life that need work. So what are those things that God is calling me away from? But then remember also that God calls us towards something, calls us to take us toward something. Um, In the text, Jesus says that he is going to make them fish for people right? That's what he calls them to. Uh, Maybe you remember the old translation that said it, that they were fishers of men. So that's what he calls them to, but we have to examine that phrase a little bit because I think we have some modern assumptions that we put into that phrase that wouldn't have been true for the original hearers. When we think of fishing, very often we think of like Northern Ontario cabin where we're taking a reed and rod or a reel and a rod and we're taking our, our line out into the water, maybe with the bobber and the baits and we're trying to catch a fish, right? And so we superimpose that idea of fishing onto what these guys were doing. And then we hear Jesus say, okay, fishers of men, that means therefore that we ought to go out and find people and sort of bait the hook for them and try to reel them in. And and that's how it's supposed to work. Except that's not how they fished at all. The way they fished, you can see it in the text, is that they cast their nets. They use drag nets. The idea was that you would take a big net and you would just pull it through the water, whether you're doing that from shore or whether you take a boat out into the water, you pull it through the water and it's going to catch literally everything, right? It's going to catch all sorts of fish and and crazy things that live underneath the water. And what they would do is they'd pull the whole net up and then they would separate like, okay, these are the fish we want. These are the fish that we don't want or whatever things we don't want, the boot that's at the bottom of the lake or something like this. I'm going to separate these things out, right? So take that image and then put it onto what he calls them to do. They're not just going out and trying to reel one person in at a time. They are broadly spreading the message of God's word to all people. And it is going to affect everyone. Some people are going to be caught and be saved by that gospel message. Some people are going to reject it and be damned and hate them and eventually kill 11 of the 12 disciples. But that's what Jesus called them to be. Fishers of people. And you can see this in the text that for sure was on Jesus' mind as he was saying this phrase to them. 
I wasn't just like a, a fun pun that he was doing like, haha, you guys are fishermen and I'm going to make you fishers of people. No, there's actually like a theological thing that he's pulling out of the Old Testament here. And that's from Jeremiah 16. Um, I'll read that text to you and then we'll just talk about it briefly. Jeremiah 16 says, however, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be said as surely as the Lord lives, who brought the Israelites up out of Egypt. So that was kind of their, their phrase that they would do to like remind themselves of what God had done in the past. He says, but it will be said as surely as the Lord lives who brought the Israelites up out of the land of the North and out of the countries where he had banished them for I will restore them to the land I gave their ancestors. Uh, the idea is here, Jeremiah is talking during the exile. Remember our series on season in the minors. We talked about the exile a lot. He said, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to bring them out of exile. I'm going to bring them back to Israel. And then I'm going to establish the true Israel in the body of Jesus. That's where he's going with this. But he says this next, but now, I will send for many fishermen, declares the Lord, and they will catch them. After that, I will send for many hunters and they will hunt them down on every mountain and hill and from the crevices of the rocks. My eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their sin concealed from my eyes. I will repay them double for their wickedness and their sin because they have defiled my land with the lifeless forms of their vile images, talking about their false worship of false gods and have filled my inheritance with their detestable idols. In other words, he says, the fishers that I'm going to call are ones who are going to catch people in their sin so that they can see that it is not by their own righteousness, their own works that they are saved. They are brought out of the land of exile, or in our case, brought out of exile from God's presence into his presence. It is all by God's grace. In the same way that God showed those Israelites back in Jeremiah's time, it is not because you are good that I am bringing you back to your land and giving you a savior. God says the same thing to us through the fishers that he has sent out into the world. Other Christians who say to us, you are not good enough by your works. You will never live up, but Jesus has died for you. Israel reduced to one has made himself vulnerable for you so that you cannot die, but live. And that's going to require you to have your sins exposed. It's going to require you to repent. But when you do, you find out that that double portion of wrath that God was going to repay on every sinner was then poured out on his son and not on you because of the fishers of men who were sent out to preach to you. And every one of us can know a couple of those fishers, can't we? Maybe it's me, maybe it's Pastor Joel. Maybe it's a combination of pastors that you've known through your life. Maybe it's just a a plethora of Christians who have spoken God's word to you over your lifetime. All those people are fishers of people who have brought you the law and the gospel. And so hear that call, be saved and then follow Jesus. Who does Jesus call? You. How does he call? powerfully by his choice, by grace, with no wiggle room. Why? To take you away from where you were to a place where he wants you, a place that is glorious and will ultimately be filled with eternal life. God grant it. Amen. Let's pray.